Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible or navigate on your device, that way you can follow along with the study. If you're online, you can go to transcript.calvaryhanford.com and uh, the morning's transcript will be there so you can figure out what's happening in that way as well. Follow along. The topic... Nehemiah casts the lot to determine who among the Israelites must repopulate Jerusalem. The title of our message, Hit Me With Your Best Lot. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks this morning for this assembly of your saints. We're here to listen to your voice, Lord, uh, through the word and by the spirit applying the word in that place between the soul and the spirit where only you can discern. Do a work here, Lord. Uh, in those that are joyful and those that are uh, weeping. And, and bless us all, Lord, for having come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You're shipwrecked, adrift in a lifeboat with several other crewmates. Supplies have been spent. The time has come. The highest-ranking crew member suggests you cast lots. According to one nautical writer... Casting lots in a lifeboat in this situation was already a long-standing custom of the sea. Even the most naive deckhand knew what to do in a lifeboat when all the inhabitants were starving because the sea shanties and ballads memorialized the tradition. Speaking of cannibalism, two cannibals met one day. It's a true story. I would laugh. It does have a humorous overtone. The first cannibal said, you know, I just can't seem to get a tender missionary. I've baked them, I've roasted them, I've stewed them, I've barbecued them, tried every sort of marinade, I just cannot seem to get them tender. Second cannibal asked, what kind of missionary do you use? Well, you know, the ones that hang out at that place at the bend of the river, they have those brown cloaks with a rope around the waist and they're sort of bald on top with a funny ring of hair around their heads. Ah, the second cannibal replied, that's no wonder, those are friars. (laughs) I can't believe you are laughing at cannibalism. My, what happened? Ordinarily, casting lots has a decidedly negative connotation. We associate it with extreme situations like that lifeboat where the winner seems to be the loser. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that casting lots was a perfectly proper, prevalent, prominent, proven procedure in Old Testament times for determining the will of God. The writer of the Proverbs goes so far as to say, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's Proverbs 16, 33. The Israelites cast lots in chapter 11 of the book of Nehemiah. Look at verse 1. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. Now that it was secured by its walls and gates, Nehemiah wanted the Israelites to repopulate Jerusalem. They cast lots, and one out of every ten families was required to move from the country into the city. Their response is certainly not what we expect. Verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. The 10% were held in high esteem by the majority, and even though they were compelled to cast lots, they're described as offering themselves 
We don't cast lots, but as Treebeard said, let's not be too hasty. There are lessons to learn from the practice. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, have you discovered God's lot in your life? And if you have, number two, are you directed by God's lot in your life? Let's take a look at discovery in chapter 11. You remember the magic eight ball? It was one of my favorite toys when I was a kid because I could always get the answer I wanted. There are 20 answers floating inside. 10 are affirmative, five are non-committal, five are negative. And so it didn't take much to figure out that that girl loved you. Uh, a magic eight ball feature film is being discussed. This is the brilliance of the internet. You start to get down these uh, rabbit holes and you figure out that they're gonna make a movie about the magic eight ball. What in the world would that be about? I don't know. Maybe Quentin Tarantino will do it. Maybe it explodes in your face. I don't know. While you're anxiously, uh, anxiously awaiting the movie, there is a Magic 8 Ball app for your phone. So when you're stressed out, you can shake it and get your answer. A Magic 8 Ball is how we tend to think of casting lots in the Old Testament. But it wasn't a form of entertainment. Neither was it like a Ouija board. It wasn't divination. It was how God's will was revealed in a certain circumstance. Ouija or Ouija? How many are for Ouija? Ouija? I've heard it both ways. Israel cast lots a lot. The conquered lands of Canaan were divided among the Israelites by lot. The sin of Jonah was determined to be the source of the storm threatening the ship by the sailors casting lots. The high priest was selected by lots at the time of David, and the list goes on and on. One historian explained the exact process by which lots were cast in ancient Israel is not always clear. There were probably several different methods. One way was by using different colored or marked stones, producing binary outcomes. Yes or no, good or bad, so, uh, selected or rejected. Pieces of broken pottery could have names or marks written on them as well, thereby offering a wider array of possible outcomes. The Jewish feast Purim involved casting lots in this way, and I'll quote Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He said, I have Proverbs 16.33 written over the book of Esther in my Bible, in his pride, Haman cast lots to determine the day of destruction of the Jewish people. But God intervened and delivered his people, and the Jewish feast of Purim, meaning lots, is a celebration of that providential day. That's how the Israelites understood the casting of lots. God ruled over it, and if he had to, he overruled it to their benefit. So it was a very uh, important method for discerning God's will. We're always quick to point out that casting lots is not the way believers in the church age discern or determine God's will. The last valid lot casting in the Bible is the book of Acts, where the disciples cast lots to choose someone to take Judas's 12th spot as an original apostle. It was justified by what they found in scripture, and it was exactly what they ought to have done. Casting lots as a means of discerning an answer from God ended there as the promised Holy Spirit was soon after given to the church on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm going to use the word lot instead of will because it's the language of the text and because I think it better communicates that God has a definite will for you to discover what we might commonly call your lot in life. Chapter 11 suggests everyone has a lot in life from the Lord in that scattered amidst many names, you're going to find various callings and vocations. So let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2 again, and then we'll get into those lots. Uh, verse 1, now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. 
the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. We think of the 10% as being voluntold where they were going to live. This happens to you, right? We need volunteers, and it's you. Okay. Uh, to, to a freedom-loving people like us, it sounds like a forced relocation. Imagine this morning if I said, hey, we want to reach out. Uh, we're going to take a lottery, and one out of 10 of you is going to move to an apartment complex in Riverdale. That's your, your, new, your new home. Uh, please stay until the end of the... Where are you going? Uh, everybody would leave, uh, or nobody would do it because we're, this is America. Uh, but to them... When the lot came up, yes, they were excited. And it says they offered themselves knowing God had made the choice. The 90% recognized that the others were specifically chosen by God to receive special blessings. From what we've said thus far, how would you answer this question? What lot has God cast into my lap? Whatever it is, are you spiritually excited knowing it is in God's will for you? even if you don't understand it or, or don't particularly want to do it? Are you offering yourself to God in it? And maybe you're looking upon someone else on their lot in life. Maybe something has changed in their life. Are you blessing them in it? Do you see it as a privilege for them, whether it seems good or not good? That's a lot to think about. I think I have one or two more puns like that because you demand them. You demand what's best. But think about that. I mean, you know, we talk about our lot in life. And again, we think of it as a terribly negative comment. You say, well, that's, that's their lot in life. They're slaves. Um, you know, nobody says, well, that's his lot in life. He's a billionaire. Uh, you know, we always think of it in the negative. But God says, no, I have, I have a lot for your life and, and in my will for your life. And you want to discover it. Verse 3 tells us how the rest of the chapter is going to shake out. These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Uh, this chapter is likely the list after the lottery. Verses 4 through 24 are the families that dwelt in Jerusalem, while verses 25 through 36 are those living outside the city. If you scan the verses... Uh, looking for things other than the names, you'll find the following callings or vocations listed. And this is just a sampling. Priests, valiant men, overseers, leaders of the house of God, brethren who did the work, mighty men of valor, one of the great men, overseer of business outside the house of God, the leader who, be who began thanksgiving with prayer, overseers of the Levites, the singers in charge of the services, and the king's deputy. The titles may be different from ones that we commonly use today, but the general idea, of course, is the same. In the house of God, there were full-time servants, such as the priests and the Levites and the singers. In the church on the earth, the current house of God, there are full-time ministers and missionaries and staff members. In Jerusalem, there were government employees. King's deputy was one. In the church, we find many who work for one or another local, state, or federal agency. They had mighty men of valor, great men. We have military, law enforcement, fire services, first responders. There was at least one guy who worked in a business situation outside of Jerusalem. He can stand for all of us who don't fit into the previous categories. He's a kind of every man or woman living for the Lord out in the world 
just like you. And so let's switch back for a moment and use this more familiar term and ask, how do I discover God's will? My lot in life, how do I discover God's will? Well, I think sometimes we need to go all the way back to the most basic principles of God's will. And the, that place to start would be with the Apostle Peter's great exclamation in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we know that it's God's will that people get saved. And this is the place to start any discussion about God's will, is to make sure a person is saved or not. No one who is not a Christian can have any idea what God's will for their life is because they have to start with that first step of accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so that's a, that's a basic. But um, one thing you can do, you know, as you're out in the world and people are struggling, you can say, hey, I know God's will for your life. I, I know his absolute perfect will for your life. What is it? It's that you would come to repentance. That it's that you would get saved. And then God will begin to reveal other things to you as well. And so we start there. And so today, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior? Because nothing else matters if you haven't. It's God's will that you be saved. In the Gospel of John, confirming this, we read, This is the will of God who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, God will save you, and he will continue the work that he began in you until you are raised from the dead or the rapture of the church takes place. And so that's God's will. Uh, bottom line foundation. Now, after you get saved, Jesus continues to work in you. It's called sanctification. It is him in cooperation with you, making you more like himself day by day until the day he presents you perfect and without blemish in heaven. To that end, an important verse would be 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, where the apostle Paul exhorted, for this is the will of God, and so that People say, what's the will of God? Well, well, this is it, he says. Your sanctification, meaning your entire uh, time between getting saved and seeing the Lord, however long or short that is. So God's will for that entire time, and he says, is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And immediately you think, well, why concentrate on that? I mean, is that, what's the issue there? Well, I don't think you have to go too far uh, to figure that out. Uh, Thessalonica, Corinth, the region of Galatia, all of them were struggling with uh, the same kinds of things that our society is struggling with today, only in different ways. What is all the talk about in our society today? It's about sexual preferences. It's about gender. It's about these kinds of things. And so Paul says, hey, if you're saved, one of the number one things to remember about the will of God is is to be sexually pure He says to abstain from sexual immorality. And so contrary to current trends, there is sexual immorality, or we might just say sexual sin. God established marriage as a covenant of companionship between one biological man and one biological woman to be monogamous and to last as long as they both shall live. Within those reasonable, protective, and loving boundaries, sexuality can be thoroughly explored and enjoyed. Anything sexual that is outside of marriage, as God has defined it, well, that's going to be sin. Fornication, 
is voluntary sex between unmarried persons. Adultery is fornication committed by persons who are married. Homosexual or lesbian behavior, rape, pedophilia, incest, and bestiality would be major headings on the list of sexually immoral practices. Sexual sin includes watching these things as well, not just doing them. After all, Jesus said that lusting after a woman was adultery. And so when you really think about it, this is an incredibly important aspect of knowing the will of God and doing the will of God because everything in our society and in our world is crushing in against God's standard in the Bible. And um, this is a good place to insert Romans 12 too, which says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so among the other things that this means, we're to hold to the Bible's standards, such as those regarding human sexuality, without wavering and prove or proclaim God's will which is both acceptable and perfect. And so we need to hold the line uh, in this area and say, hey, um, there is a God, he has spoken, there is a wonderful thing called human sexuality, and it's great within marriage, but all of these other areas are a problem. And as I've pointed out many times before, I think one place where the church, I don't want to use the word failed, or, or but is missing the mark a little bit, we don't decry what have become more normal sexual sins anymore. I mean, we're not happy about them. We're not excited about them. We still understand that they're wrong. But we spend all of our time at some end of the spectrum where none of us ever have any problems. And um, meantime, fornication and adultery among Christians is really pretty commonplace. And if all the uh, statistics are correct, so is pornography. And and, and so... um, the will of God is that you be saved and then you abstain from sexual immorality. And from that platform, you can go to the next thing, and that is 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As we're fond of saying, and you've heard this many times, you don't give thanks for everything, but you can give thanks in everything. You can be grateful uh, because of your salvation and because of the abundant grace of God that will sustain you. We saw a couple of weeks ago or last week, you know, the saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will, and he does, uh, but he won't give you more than he can handle. And I can be thankful that God is in charge of my life. And if this is my lot in life, like Paul, I can say I can bring glory to God. And so um, this is uh, really great stuff. Uh, You know, get saved, stay pure, be thankful. Let's return to our primary question. Have I discovered God's lot in my life? That's where we would start with this foundation. And once you have that foundation, then you can find more specific things. I have kind of a theory, at least it works in my walk with the Lord, that he, he's not gonna tell me something else until I uh, put something in motion. And I've used this in counseling before, talking to couples. I said, hey, God wants you to do this even if you can't see where it's going to lead. We always want to you know, see the end. And God, just obey God in this one thing. Be Abraham. God said, hey, Abe, uh, I'm calling you out of Ur of the Chaldees. Head out. Okay, Lord, where am I going? I'll show you. Uh, how about you show me now? No, nope, just start walking. And uh, you know, that, that's a, 
uh, a step of faith, we call it. And so uh, if I'm hearing this this morning and I'm not saved, and the Holy Spirit has brought me here to hear the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is in heaven getting ready to come back, that's the place to start. And then if I'm saved, no matter how long I've been saved, I need to check myself for sexual immorality and I need to think about whether I'm really a grateful person in the Lord. And then I can be more uh, sure that I'm going to hear God tell me what his will is. But until I do those things, I'm not saying I'm completely blocked, but God's saying, hey, if I'm saying, God, what's your will for me? This is my will, why not do this? And then I'll tell you more. But if I, I'm not gonna give you this over here because we have a problem. Secondly, are you directed by God's lot in your life? That's chapter 12. Let me read you a quote I encountered in my research this week. You don't have to go far in either the Hebrew scriptures or the New Testament before you hit them. Those lists of unpronounceable names. The lists and genealogies in the Bible have been a source of much consternation and sometimes merriment as hapless readers struggle through exotic and multisyllabic is it syllabic or syllabic? Is it Ouija or Ouija? Middle Eastern names in their Bible study groups. Do we really have to bother with these lists? Is it so bad to skip them? See, I can't even read English words, let alone Hebrew names. And then the, the writer says this, and, and it's humbling. They may be a tongue-twisting challenge, but they can be a great benefit to studying. Quite often there are treasures buried in the driest, hardest places in God's word, hidden for those who love the Bible enough to start digging. I have to agree, but I'm still not going to read the names aloud. <laughs> and you're still going to be happy. For you who are more spiritual, the author I just quoted listed the following four reasons you should read the list. Number one, names have meanings. Number two, they show the Bible is a book of genuine history. Number three, looking through the generations reminds us of God's faithfulness. And number four, details are often included amidst the names that make a point. That's one of the things we're keying in on today, the details of the occupations that are listed there. Now, for the record, I do read the names or I listen to them being read in my devotions. I am not 100% carnal. Uh, and so, and I understand. And I've done studies before where you just took all the names, you know, and tried to make something out of it. Uh, so maybe we'll get back to that and if I get spiritual again. Uh, I did take the time to count the names in the first 26 verses, 108 Hebrew names. So be thankful. As I'm fond of suggesting, however, if you're pregnant with a boy, you might want to consult the list. At least your son won't have the same name as every other boy in his class. There's something cool about being the only Ganethan or Bakbukaya. Could you imagine that? John here, Matt here, Bakbukaya. I love it. Hey, you know what? It's not as silly as 90% of the names I hear anymore. But anyway, verse 1. Now, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra. First 26 verses are a register of priests and Levites. There's a little overlap in these verses about the dedication of the wall described at the end of the chapter. We'll look at them in conjunction with that dedication next week, Lord willing and rapture permitting. In Israel, priests and Levites especially understood this idea of having a lot in life. Israel, you'll recall, consisted of 12 tribes. In order of their birth, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin. The tribe of Joseph included his sons born in Egypt, 
Ephraim and Manasseh, and so that's why sometimes uh, his name will be there, or Ephraim or Manasseh, and commentators go crazy trying to figure out exactly why they choose one and not another. Uh, and there's reasons why in some cases. But uh, 12 tribes, uh, 12 literal tribes. And, and you know, both everybody who teaches here lately, Gene and I and Jacob, we've been on a tear to uh, get off subject a lot and tell you about Bible prophecy that it's literal because there's a lot of teaching right now that is trying to say, oh, you know, these things are all symbolic. And I was listening to a guy the other day. There's a passage, of course, the famous 144,000 uh, in the Revelation. It says 12 tribes, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, this guy said, because the name of Dan wasn't in the list, it's obviously allegorical. And so, ugh. The 12 tribes are always the 12 tribes descended from these 12 real men until you get to Revelation, and then it's some kind of an allegory. Uh, and so j just don't be drawn into that stuff. It's ridiculous. Uh, anyway, sorry, I, I had to do it. God chose the tribe of Levi to serve the temple. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites would be priests, only the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first high priest of Israel. You were born into your Levitical lot in life. There was nothing you could do about it. There was no changing tribes. You didn't drop your buff and merge with another tribe like you do in Survivor. Can't wait to get to the merge. If I can just get to the merge. Yeah, no, you're a Levite. Do you understand? You're a lifetime Levite. You get no inheritance of land because the Lord is your inheritance. It's a little like being born Italian. Not all of us have been so uniquely blessed, and, and so I understand the pain that you have dealing with this. One result of their birth was that unlike the other tribes, as I said, they inherited no land. Now, I might have made all of this sound like a bad thing, and we usually would think that way. I was born into something, I didn't have a choice, and I don't even get any land for it, but quite the opposite. Listen to this from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. At first, this may seem puzzling, but closer examination reveals that in lieu of territorial possessions, the tribe of Levi was allotted the sacrifices or offerings, the priesthood, and the Lord himself. Who could have dreamed of a greater inheritance? And so in, your, in their spiritual moments, if you went to a Levite and say, hey, would you, you want to have some land in the upper Negev? Or do you want to have the Lord as your inheritance and serve the Lord in the temple? Well, that's what we would call today a no-brainer, and so that's what was going on. These guys were definitely directed by their lot in life, and at this point in Israel's story, they were going for it with all their might. If you're not in open sin or rebellion, you're most likely right where God has cast your lot. He's probably giving you many of the desires of your heart in terms of family and career, He's good like that. Tell him I'll call back. I'm busy right now, and that's an interruption. But anyway, uh, I love it. Oh, it's me. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> that was a good one. I love it. Ushers, would you escort? No, I'm just... <laughs> We're going to start confiscating cell phones, except that I am glued to mine all the time. I don't know how Nick got mine last, was it last week or two weeks ago? Shame on you. But uh, stealing the pastor's iPhone. 
That's like a mortal sin among Protestants. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about now, but it's fun. So your lot in life. No, don't, don't remind me, please. Uh, I just have to make it up. God gives you the desires of your heart. There's a common theory, uh, you know, among um, mostly legalistic people that God wants you to do awful, terrible things to prove yourself. You need to go to pygmies in Africa, if there are any that have not heard the gospel by now, because that's where everybody has to go. Uh, but, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, really, God wants to give you the desires of your heart. He, now, you know, when you get saved and as you are sanctified, he has to tweak some of those desires. They're not all godly, and, and ultimately, they're not all good. And many times they'll work out differently than the way you think they're going to work out. I know I've got a few minutes. We're good on time, so I'll tell you this brief story. Before I became a Christian, uh, and I realized I got out of high school, and then I realized I had to get a job, and I didn't want to do that, and so I went to college. Uh, It's a great motivation for going to college. And I went to junior college for two years, then I went to the University of California, Riverside, and I I, uh, graduated with a couple of useless degrees in uh, philosophy and psychology, and then I realized now I really have to get a job unless I go to graduate school. And so I uh, <laughs> tried to get into graduate school at Cal State San Bernardino. They had some kind of program. It was a counseling program where they taught you how to counsel people. And I completely bombed out. And uh, I was, you know, they just, they rejected me. It was the first time I'd ever been rejected in my life. Well, that's not true either, but... But, uh, and I, I, you know, looking back, I think, why would they not want a sociopath like me to help other people? <laughs> I, I don't understand it, you know? Uh, and so, you know, fast forward, you know, after I got saved and, you know, I come to the family of believers and people are counseling me and I'm counseling them and I get to teach the word of God. And so what I didn't realize back then was that God was going to give me, in a sense, the desire of my heart in that uh, I I had somewhere in the bottom of all my sin a desire to maybe help people, but the only real help is found where? In Jesus and in the word of God. And so I could be a successful married five times counselor, you know, by now, (laughs) telling people what to do in their marriage. And, and, uh, you know, by the way, if you ever go in for marriage counseling, ask some questions about your counselor's marriage. (laughs) I think that's sort of insightful. Uh, How many... How long, you know, is it working for you? Because whatever. Uh, Anyway, so so God gives you your desires of your heart. He just has to tweak them sometime. And what we're talking about here, very simple, in that, in your career, in your job, at your school, wherever you're at, wherever your lot takes you, then God wants you to go for it for him. He wants you to do it as unto him. Basic Christianity, right? Everything you do, do as unto the Lord. For example, the Apostle Peter in a section about our lives in the world said, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, fools aren't a small subset of humanity. It isn't that one guy or gal at work that creeps everybody out. A fool is anyone who is not in Christ. The fool has said in their heart, there is no God. And so by definition, a person who is not a Christian is a fool. It's foolish. Uh, and so um, uh, Paul, Peter's talking about a big group of people, non-believers. And doing good here doesn't mean you're a model employee or citizen or student. That should go without saying. You should be the model employee, the model citizen, the model student. Uh, we're all falling short of that from time to time. It's not to lay a burden on us. But with the help of the Lord living in you, 
and the changes that he's making in your life, you ought to be the cream of the crop when it comes to those things. People should seek you out and notice you just because you're a cut above because of the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, and so what this is talking about, Peter is talking about, is that in those places where God has cast you, what your lot in life is, where you're being the best you can be, you also need to be sharing him and representing him and letting people know that it's because of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting you aren't doing enough, but let's face it, the New Testament frequently exhorts believers to awaken from spiritual slumber. It says, stir up the gifts and callings of God that are in you. It was to a seemingly successful local church in Ephesus that Jesus said, you have left your first love. You read the first part of the letter to the Ephesians. It's fantastic. You think, wow, I want to be like that church with their good works and their, their zeal and all of that. And then Jesus says, I, I do have one thing against you, and it's pretty serious. You've left your first love. All the things that you're doing, you're doing in the flesh for the wrong motivation. And all Christians, we all need to hear this from time to time. We need to be stirred up. We need to be woken up. We need to return to our first love. We should be cultivating an ever-growing, ever-deepening relationship with Jesus, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, from a foundation of being saved, pursuing holiness, and being thankful in all things, he will reveal more about our lot in life, and he will supply it with super abundant grace. 